Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, May 24th, 2020, we continue our series titled, Live Different, The Sermon on the Mount. Today's sermon, What Does and Doesn't Save Me, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Enjoy. Hey, good morning, church. You know, as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus' words as it comes to the end of chapter 7 here become very sobering. I mean, the tone changes and, and becomes very clarifying and there's a sense that it's almost frightening at the same time. As he talks about walking on the narrow way while the rest of the world mostly walks on a much easier, wider route. Then he talks about false prophets that are among us, that look like us, that are really wolves in sheep's clothing. And then this morning, he's gonna talk about the fact that not everyone who thinks that they know Christ actually does. See, Jesus here will be very clear about what does and what does not save us. Let's read the scriptures together so we can follow along. Verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now the first thing you're gonna see here in verse 21 is what is required to get into heaven. He says, not everyone who declares that Jesus is Lord is actually going to go to heaven. Because see, their words really don't reflect a changed heart. You see, sometimes putting two names together, it, which is something that's uh, it's called a Hebraic, which is actually or typically something that expresses emotion and affection, you know, many times has great meaning. For example, in Exodus chapter three, verse four, when God calls and, and he's, there's this fire on the mountain and Moses goes up to the mountain to meet God and God calls to him from the burning, burning bush and he says, Moses, Moses. And then he had a big task for him to do. Another time would be is Jesus in Luke chapter 22 before he's getting ready to, to go out and, and, and be arrested and then ultimately crucified, looks at Peter and he says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to, to have you, but I've prayed for you, you're gonna be okay. So those were real words of affection and perhaps when someone here in chapter seven says, Lord, Lord, perhaps the intent is the same, but Lord isn't Jesus' name. It's his position, his role. And so it's very possible that this is more likely an acknowledgement of his position and, and a sense of respect and, and maybe he's, they're being polite. You know, respect for authority was a really big thing then. In fact, Caesar at that time actually demanded that when people would speak of him, they would refer to him as a god. And so everybody in Roman-held authority, whether you like Rome or not, was required to acknowledge him as Lord. The term, you know, sometimes is used for even rabbi or master, but it really meant nothing uh, because they really weren't, you know, submitting their lives to the will of God. The will of God here is that the son would come and he would die on a cross as a sacrifice for us. Now, we know that from a bunch of different things. And for example, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jesus in Hebrews chapter 10, verse seven, and he says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It was God's will that he would go to the cross and die. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, 
verse 42, Jesus is in the garden and he says this. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew exactly what the Father's will was, that he was supposed to come and that he would die. Now, to do his will is to trust his will. And so their words here were completely without trust. They were basically lip service because they weren't doing his will. That's why Jesus in in Luke chapter six, verse 46 would say, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Lots of people do that. People will express that they follow the Lord, but then they don't obey him at all. You know what's interesting is a lot of people can recognize that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. In fact, it's so interesting because in James chapter two, verse 19, it talks about the fact that the demons even believe. They know exactly who he is. They know exactly what he is going to do, but they don't serve him. They don't do his will. Now, the confession here also of Lord, Lord also recognizes not only that he's Lord, but it does not submit themselves to the Father's will, which means there is no heart change. This is a confession without submission. That's not gonna work. If you go back to Matthew chapter six for a minute, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, in verses nine and 10, he says something really interesting to him here. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, when he's teaching them how to pray, what he's saying to them is, you ought to be praying that my will would be done. You ought to be trusting in my will, following my will. That's not something that we do a lot. And so here in verse 21, you see that this person here who cries out, Lord, Lord, is not going to get into heaven simply because of affection or respect. They're going to get into heaven if they've followed the plan of the Father, if they've trusted in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Just to say Jesus is Lord is a a false confidence. It's a self-deception. And unfortunately, so many people do this today. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say something to the effect of, well, I think it's all just gonna work out in the end. Or, you know, God and I have this understanding, you know, we understand each other. Like God is exactly on your level. You're not on God's level. None of us are. That's a deception that we somehow think that we can barter with God. We can't. We follow his plan. Now, the second thing that you see here comes from verses 22 and 23 of chapter seven, and that is that religion won't save us. Let me go back and read this again here. Verse 22 says, and on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? I mean, it's all they're doing is religious activity, it seems like there. Now, he starts off here in verse 22 and he says, on that day, what day? Judgment day. You know, it's interesting 
There's a story, we're not gonna turn to it right now, but there's a story in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 through 46 where Jesus there talks about, he says, the Son of Man is going to come back and he's going to judge. Now, the Son of Man was a reference to himself. He called himself that a lot. And he says he's gonna come in and he's gonna judge like a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. In other words, there are some people there that are going to look like they're supposed to be there but they really don't, and he's gonna judge them. Which, by the way, that answers one of those really hard questions. Yes, a God of grace is going to judge. The very end of the scriptures, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says there, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. That's judgment. And so at the judgment here, verse 22 tells us that people will do two things. First of all, and by the way, the two things they're gonna do, they're really trying to to make sure that their side is heard, their words are heard so that they can get into heaven. The first thing they're gonna do here is they're gonna debate with God. Many people will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now think about what an amazing picture that really is. Here we are trying, here's this group of people here trying to debate with God trying to convince God that they really do have a relationship. It would be a little bit like you having a debate with your own children and them talking about something that they had absolutely no knowledge of at all. They're trying to convince God, oh yeah, yeah, you know us. He's not saying that. It's verse 23 here is obvious here that they do not believe. He says, I never knew you. Now, notice here that the works that they're doing here are pretty dramatic and actually kind of showy. First of all, he says they they talk about prophecy. Prophecy is not, in this case, is not the idea of telling something that's going to happen that just hasn't yet. Prophesy here would mean to speak forth. It's like preaching. This would be a little bit like what happens here behind the pulpit. That, That would be prophecy. Then they talk about casting out demons or mighty works, which they really don't explain, you know, in a lot of ways here. And all of those seem to be sort of that showy type of religious activity. It's so interesting that none of the people here would mention anything about feeding the hungry or sharing the gospel message or or helping a widow or an orphan, which the scriptures tell us is really what true religion does. Nothing here about building small groups of people in discipleship. And yet three times here they will say, we did it in your name. It's part of their debating. We did it in your name. Think about that. Do you realize how many things have been done in God's name that God never told them to do? I can't tell you how many times that I've had a, a situation where, you know, someone and I are, are, are talking and the, we get into the gospel and, and it becomes a, one of those apologetic moments where they're sort of trying to get me and I'm answering back and everything and they say, you know, the sheer numbers of things that are done in the name of God, ugh, I wince every time until I remember this verse here that this, people, this group of people here were lost and their only defense at this moment is to come back and say, yeah, but we did it in your name. It's wrong. The Bible has lots of instances where people have done stuff and used God's name. Sometimes it was even the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 14 
verses 14 and 15 says this, and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, a worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although I did not send them and who say sword and famine shall come upon this land, by sword and famine those prophets will be consumed. There's always been those that have said, well, I speak for God. When the Lord clearly here is saying, no, you don't. You see, what backs that up is, am I doing his will? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do, verse 21 tells me. Deuteronomy 13 is another example of those that say they, they speak for the Lord. In verse 13, in verses one through three, he says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that tells you to, to it tell uh, that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us then go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. These things happen. It's interesting, Paul, in, in Philippians chapter one, verse 15 says that even in the New Testament church, he said some people came along and he says some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Now think about that. I can't even imagine a church, yeah, this church is, is based on envy and rivalry. What? Isn't the church supposed to be based on forgiveness, the gospel message, the love of God? There have always been people that have got the, the message wrong. The truth here is there's lots of examples in the Bible of miracles that were done just to deceive people. Jesus himself would tell us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, he says, for false Christs and false priests will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's you. You're the elect. You're the church, the chosen by God. That would be the idea, is to mess you up. Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, give us this amazing story. It says there, and then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took to invoke, or undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? There were people here trying to do miraculous things on their own power. They don't even know who Jesus is, but they're willing to go out and use Jesus' name if it gives them that platform. See, religious activity we have to be so careful of it doesn't make you a believer. But it sounds good. I mean, it sounds really wonderful, godly. But it's not what makes you a believer. It should come out of a transformed life. And yet for many people, they're using it to gain a transformed life. And that would be wrong. We ought to be coming out of a, a heart that's already changed. In fact, let me show you something. Turn over your, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is formally known as, as the love chapter. But in 1 Corinthians 13, if you look at the first three verses here, it will tell you something amazing about doing something outside of a transformed life. Verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse one says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to, to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but do not love, I gain nothing. In other words, it doesn't matter what works you've done. And so the works here that they're claiming in verse 22 of prophesying, you know, and, and casting out demons, doing these mighty works, absolutely amounted to nothing. Because they didn't come out of a transformed heart. It's important to understand here that we are not saved by those works. We're not. Titus chapter three, verse five says this. It says, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God does not save us because we have done something. And unfortunately, one of the wrongs that so many people today in our society think is I've got to do my part and then maybe God does a little of his part. Or I've got to earn my way in. Or there's this balance sheet, you know, in heaven and I want to make sure that I'm on the side of good and I'm on the side of giving, you know, and that's going to get me in. And it's not. These people who would cry out three times, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. They were trusting in their plan, their will, not God's will. That's what we saw there in verse 21. They're crying out to the Lord, yeah, I think that I, I know you, I, I, I do know you, but you don't know my will. Now the third thing you'll see here. In verse 23 is you'll see what will save me is a relationship with God. Look what he says in verse 23. Go back to Matthew chapter seven there. Verse 23 says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So in verse 23 here, he starts off with, and then. Well, when is he talking about He's talking about the judgment. He says, and then I will declare to them. That, that term there, declare, is actually a legal term. The phrase was actually used by the Pharisees in those times when they were excommunicating somebody, which is actually kind of an amazing thought here because considering the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes here probably were the false you know, prophets. In this case, he uses their own term as a way of moving them away to tell them, look, you're not even a part of what I'm doing. That phrase there, the declare, it, it, what it meant was, I, I know all about you. I know what you've done, but you are a stranger to me. You're an outsider. Maybe another way to say it would be is not for a single moment have I acknowledged you as my own. They weren't believers. 
Even though they were doing these works, even though they were claiming to have this affection for God, even though they were saying that they were doing it in his name, they weren't. You know, he he calls them here workers of lawlessness. Let me show you something. Go back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 4. John writes here and he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The issue is these people had a practice of sinning. This is what they did. This is how they lived their life. They weren't holy. They weren't righteous. They weren't different. This was a fake spirituality. Now the question is, what is the answer here for us? Well, the answer is you need to make sure that you have, that I have, that each of us have a personal relationship with Christ. I say that because perhaps you've been raised in the church. Perhaps you've heard it your whole life. Perhaps you just made some assumptions about things. Perhaps you saw people going and doing this and you said, that's a good idea. And then you just went and did it too. And you sort of patted yourself on the back and thought that was a really good thing. When the issue here is, Jesus makes a statement in verse 23 and says the problem here is not that you say you know me. The problem is I don't know you. I know about you, but I've never claimed you as my own. And so the issue is, do I really have a relationship with Christ? Listen to what the the scriptures tell us about that. In John chapter one, verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God, part of his family. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He will save you if you call him. Romans 10, verses nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount to bring people to a point of decision so that they would trust him, that they would follow him. They would not follow the religious ways that the Pharisees and the scribes had prescribed. They would not try to follow the, just saying, I'm gonna do the rules over here and think that's gonna be good enough to get me in, that they needed to trust in him. That's why back in chapter chapter five, verse 20, Jesus would say, you need a righteousness that is beyond the most righteous people alive. Well, how could you do that? They were already doing every single law. They made up laws. Then in, in chapter five, verse 48, he says, you need to be perfect. Well, as a human, how could you be perfect? Only if a perfect God made a way. Now you get to verses 21 and 23, and Jesus is telling us here, you cannot just acknowledge him and do religious stuff. You need a spiritual rebirth, a transformed life. You know what you need, and I know it sounds very religious to say this, you have to be born again. 
That was a cool thing at one time and then all of a sudden it became this thing. It's like, uh, people didn't really want to associate that. They didn't want to say that, but Jesus does. John chapter three, verses one through six, Jesus says these words. He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, that term wasn't just an odd term today. It was even kind of a weird thought even then. Because in verse four, Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, here's the question. Have you had a spiritual birth? Not just are you a good guy. Have you had a spiritual birth? Not just that you've been on some missions trips and maybe you gave to a good cause and you helped some people out. Have you had a spiritual birth? That's the transformation that Jesus says it requires. Jesus' words here in verse 23, I never knew you, would be changed by that spiritual transformation of new birth. You need to have that birth. Now, it's important that you understand something that that's a personal thing. It's not something that happens in a family. It's not like you can go to a cheap motel and your kids can stay for free. That's not what we're talking about here. This is something that happens personally for each one of us. There was a time in our life where we recognize that we agree with God, we agree with the will of God, that his death, burial, and resurrection was necessary for me to be able to get into heaven. So the question is, do you believe that? And if you believe that, would you ask him to make that real of you? You see, that's why the passage says you can, you can confess, you can believe, you can call on the name of the Lord, you can receive, John 1.12 says. That's what you need to do. I wanna encourage you, you can do that right where you're at right now. I'm gonna pray, and I'll pray out loud. And I wanna encourage you, I know you're home, I know there are probably people sitting around you. So right where you're at, silently, I'm gonna ask all of you that you would put your eyes down, your, your eyes closed, your heads down, just for a second, and there's not anything spiritual about that. But what it does is it gives you a chance to focus in on you for a second. And I'm gonna ask you to make sure that you have done that. You've had that spiritual transformation of asking Christ to come into your life, to forgive you, to take control of you, to live inside of you, to make you his child. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts and the minds of our people. That they would be very clear about their love for you and their desire to walk with you. 
And Father, I pray that uh, there would be no confusion, that they would not listen to the messages of the world, that they would not consider the things that they have done in the past, their works, but they would trust in you and you alone, that you would be that transforming power that would alter their lives. Father, make it real. Confirm your love for them and your forgiveness in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, could I encourage you just to let us know that we could, so we can pray for you? Nothing would be better than for us to be able to pray and ask God to bless you and be with you on this brand new walk of faith that you have. Listen, we love you, we're excited. We, we hope that you'll get a chance to plug into the church, to get into a, connect into a small group. As we begin to gather again in person, that you'll be able to be a part of all that we're doing. But we're mostly excited about the fact that you have new life in Jesus Christ. You know, the scriptures tell us in, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that we're supposed to examine ourselves. What does that mean exactly? Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Well, the sign here would be a transformed heart and mind. That means that things are going to be different inside of us. That means the sign of new life inside of me is a desire to honor God, not dishonor Him. A desire to see His name lifted high. A love for the story of the gospel. A conviction over the things that I've done wrong or I've fallen short things of the Lord. It's a new love. It's a love for the things that he's doing. It's a, it's a love and an interest for God's word so that I know how he wants me to live. It's a love for this group of people called the church that I don't even know. It's a new family. It's a desire inside of you that says, you know, you should be in church. You should be with your family. I'm praying that if God has transformed your life, that you'd stop fighting him, that you do what he wants you to do. God will put his hand to blessing on if you do that.